chapter 9. We're going to take a nod to 1 Thessalonians 1.4 also, and we'll be going to Romans somewhere around the next few minutes. There will be a key word that's going to come forward in the message today, and it's the word fanarao. Fanarao. And that's related to another word that should be quite familiar to us from Romans, and that's apocalypto, where that word, that fateful word apocalypse comes from. Both of these are related, and they are in some way synonyms for revelation, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Phanerao, apocalypto. Now, with regard to that first one, phanerao, which means to manifest or to make manifest, I've been having something swirl around in my mind and it's been established in my mind now for actually several years a connection with first Peter and Hebrews and it's actually a little up the road in our exegesis of Hebrews it'll be found in 926 and we'll be looking at that today so I decided to go forward a little bit and do this connection this correspondence with that word fenerao so that when we get there in our line upon line study, it'll be waiting for us. And that's one of the things, one of my strategies in exegesis. Sometimes I go ahead and establish some doctrine so that when we get there, that doctrine's waiting for us already and we kind of have an aha, aha moment. So I'm speaking this message today knowing beloved brothers and sisters, your election. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Paul, to the church at Thessalonica, said knowing. And that's another favorite word in the Greek. Whenever I see that in the Greek text, I'm happy. Oida. Because oida is a word that means to know fully and absolutely, to know it to the maximum, to know it without doubt. And so Paul says knowing Beloved brothers and sisters, your election, might as well write that up here too, ek, that's E-K-L-O-G-E-N, ek logain, kind of comes to the English language as election, knowing, beloved brothers and sisters, your election by God. Now, the doctrine of election is one of the most significant doctrines that we could ever study in all the Word of God. And to understand and know your election, our election together, we must first understand and know God's election. For God elected himself to be for us. An election is a predetermination of someone or something. God actually predetermined before time himself to be for us. He also predetermined us to be for him despite our resistance of him. 
The second thing we have to understand, and as importantly as the first thing to know our election, is to know the election of Jesus Christ. Peter says it this way, and one of my favorite English words lately has been the word indeed, indeed, to stress something. And the Bible sometimes has that word by various forms in the Greek, but Jesus Christ is called foreknown indeed in 1 Peter 1.20. We want to look at that. Foreknown, however, means more than just known beforehand. It means determined beforehand. Jesus Christ was also determined beforehand. The Lamb of God slain or slaughtered before the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world or before time itself. Not just before time, but before time. Jesus Christ was predetermined by God to be for us. And this is profound in as much as the election of Jesus Christ is the election of all mankind. First, the election of the community called the New Covenant community, for we are elect in him. And we may wrap this around Ephesians, or Ephesians wrapped around this sometime soon too, for the Bible says that he chose us in him. There is no choosing of us, but choosing us in him, in Jesus Christ. There is no our election, our certain election, without the election of Jesus Christ, because when he was predetermined to be for us, we were predetermined to be in him. And by we, ultimately, I mean all mankind, but first the community called the New Covenant community, elect ones, plural, in him. So thirdly, we understand the election of the community in union with Christ. Fourthly, we understand the election of the individual, the individual man or woman. God elects the individual man or woman not determined by their response to him, not determined by their faith in him, but on the basis of his own election of himself to be for them, on the basis of his own election of Jesus Christ to be for them, and not only for them, as them in election. And he determines each person to be elect in him despite that person's unbelief and despite that person's resistance of God's love. In fact, God predetermines to reject man's negative rejection of Christ. God has predetermined to reject man's rejection of Jesus Christ. So man may be proud of his rejection of God, his rejection of the existence of God, his rejection of Christ, his rejection of the will of God and the love of God, but God rejects his rejection and considers it to be nothing. God's election is everything. Man's rejection is nothing. Furthermore, when God elected Jesus Christ to be for us, he elected Jesus Christ to be the only rejected one by God for us that he became on the cross. If you don't believe it, you've got to read verses like he became a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. And he became sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. As we've said before, and I agree with Karl Barth on this, the reformers, so-called, did not go far enough when they said that we receive an imputed righteousness from God when we believe. It is not 
God giving us an imputed righteousness. It is God making us the righteousness of God in him. We are not imputed with righteousness only. We are constituted as righteous in him. For the, by the obedience of one, the many, and that means all in Romans 5.19, have been constituted to be righteous. In Adam, they were constituted to be sin for, sinners. In Christ, constituted to be righteous ones. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that's the elect one, Jesus Christ, became sin, was made to be sin itself, that you would be made to be the righteousness of God itself. Justification goes way beyond the imputation of a so-called alien righteousness to people. It become, we become the righteousness of God in him. And we illustrated that also, and I, I plan to do it again in Ephesians 5.8, where it says, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk like it. Act like what you are. Be what you are. Now, with regard to election, of Israel, Paul wrote this. Regarding the gospel, he's writing to Gentiles in this particular instance in Romans 11:28. He says, regarding Israel, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Enemies of the gospel for your advantage, you Gentiles so that the gospel can come freely to you. But then he says, but regarding the election, please note this, regard, at least mentally that is, regarding the election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, loved by God because of the patriarchs. Now please, what should strike us here, instead of just passingly reading this, what should strike us is that People who are enemies of the gospel are also loved by God and elected. Loved by God and elected despite being enemies of the gospel. That should tell you something about election that, well, in 11, 5, and 6, it's an election based totally in grace. And if it's not grace, then if it's not grace, and if it's grace and works, it's no more grace. If it's works, it's no more grace, but it is grace, so it's grace after grace. We've all received from his fullness, his pleroma, says John 1.16, and grace after grace, grace after grace, grace on top of grace, grace that can be called nothing else but grace, grace plus nothing, grace that you can't add anything to, and so, again, notice that Israel is loved by God and elected despite their enmity to the gospel. God's love of Israel, his election of Israel, is rooted in his own election of himself to be for Israel. I love Ezekiel 36, 9. Behold, I am for you, he says, to the mountains of Israel, and you will be tilled and sown and you will be fruitful. I am for you. And he says, the time will come when I will take out of you the stony heart. I will remove the stony heart and place within you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you. 
I will put my spirit in you and cause you to fulfill my commands, which is to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. It should be noted that Israel is loved by God and elected. Now, believe it or not, there is a connection here to Hebrews, and it will go right to Hebrews 9.26 before too long. The gifts, the reason for this, Paul explains in 11.29, which is rarely considered in its context when we quote this verse. Christians rarely, we rarely consider context when we quote verses. Sometimes we even rarely consider the true interpretation of what we're quoting. John 3.16 is a huge one with regard to that. But in Romans 11.29, Paul explains why. He says, because the gifts, and that's charismata, might as well do this while I'm here, charismata, or we get the word charismatic, unfortunately. And the word charis is grace, that's the root word of charismata, charisma is the singular. There is a charisma which goes above all other gifts, and it's the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is universal. Because the wages of sin is death for everybody, so the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord for everybody. He's already established that being for everybody in Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22. You've been made alive with Christ in Ephesians 2.5. So the reason why they are elected and loved despite their enmity to the gospel is because the gifts and the calling. Clasis here is now used. Clasis. Clasis. The beauty about going Romans, through Romans verse by verse and word by word is several years later, it lights up to you like it didn't when you were first studying it. It lights up when you're not expecting it. It's the amazing creativity of God. Because the gifts and the calling, hey, clases of God are irrevocable. In our plain language, not to be taken back. The gifts and the calling of God are not to be taken back. It should be noted that the gifts, charismata, ta charismata of God include, most notably in Romans 6.23, the gift, charisma, singular, of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift, charisma, which has universal, is as universal as the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death, for everyone, for in Adam all die. But the gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life for everyone because in Christ all will be made alive. He experienced death for everyone without exception while far from God, says Hebrews 2.9 in one alternate translation. If you want to do the other translation by the grace of God, do that too. They both work. So, this gift, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, is as universal as the wages of sin or death. It should also be noted that the calling of God, klesis, hey, klesis, that's from the Greek word kaleo, 
which really does kind of come down to the English language as call, but it's kaleo, K-A-L-E-O. Klesis, the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. The calling of God issued from eternity, from God, who elected himself to be for Israel. The calling from eternity, from Jesus Christ, who was elected to be for Israel, who loved Israel, and we were elected in love in him before the foundation of the world, and that's irrevocable love and an irrevocable calling. So it should also be noted that calling is a synecdoche. That means it's a figure of speech where a part is given for the whole. And I'll explain what I mean because we're going to go. In fact, let's do that. Let's go to Romans 8. 29. This has been called by theologians, and rightly so, a golden-linked chain. A golden-linked chain. There is a chain of four events here that cannot be broken. They, there cannot be a separation of one of these links from another, because to say the one is to say the other. To say one of the four things is to say all four of the things, and it's all rooted in the election. So when we talk about calling, we're also talking about election. The gifts and the calling of God are without revocation. You can't, they will never be revoked, never called back. That's an irrevocable blessing. And this was related to the golden link chain of Romans 8.30. Foreknown, as many as he foreknew. Now here we have something that we need to clarify, and it hasn't been clarified as, as it should be in most theological systems. Foreknown is the same here as chosen beforehand. To be foreknown by God is to be chosen beforehand, not just known like God knows us or knows about us in the future but he determines something about us in the past. And that includes a what? A predestination to be conformed into the likeness of his son so that his son, Jesus Christ, in, still in 829 here, can be and would be the firstborn of a family made of many siblings. The many siblings leaps over to Hebrews 2.10, which talk, talk, talks about the sons and daughters that God calls to glory, the called to glory. But as many as he foreknew, that is, as many as he determined beforehand, he also did what? Called. The calling of God is without taking it back. And as many as he called, that means the exact number that he called, not skipping one or missing one, he justified. And as many as he justified, exactly the same number, he glorified. I'll put that in the aorist, timeless sense. These are all done deals. And so... The golden link chain of Romans 8.30, foreknown, which is the same as chosen beforehand, as we'll see, called, justified, glorified. It's an unbroken chain. Each link in the chain indicates God's election because first and foremost of all these four things, foreknown, as it's called, which is really predetermined, called, justified, 
and glorified. First and foremost among all these is chosen beforehand or the election. Called, therefore, can be considered elected just as justified and glorified can be considered elected. No one is called without being first or simultaneously elected or chosen or predetermined. No one is justified without being first and foremost foreknown in the sense of elected beforehand, progenosco. No one is glorified without being elected, called, and justified. Any link in this unbreakable chain can stand as a word denoting election. Election is the foremost thing. God's election is the foremost thing. His election of himself to be for us. God, there is no God, therefore, because God elected himself to be for us. There is no God but God for us. And because God elected us in Jesus Christ, there is no person, human being, who is not elected in Jesus Christ. You can see where Calvinism slipped up. Not only did Calvinism slip up, Calvinism is a deplorable and heretical system of teaching because it indicates that God has selected from among humanity certain ones who are irresistibly by grace brought into the fold while the rest are left to damnation. So you're damned if you do believe or damned if you don't believe. You're damned if you're good and you're damned if you're bad. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in Calvinism and ultimately you actually go to hell because of the terrible crime of being born. You like that system? You want to call yourself a Calvinist? A five-point Calvinist, TULIP. The TULIP, the five points, the T-U-L-I-P. The I is irresistible grace. I agree with irresistible grace, but I don't think it was just for a few. I don't think it was just for a few selected people out from the human race, I think it was because God elected himself to be for the human race per se and Jesus Christ to be for us, that his election is for all. In fact, all have been elected in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the only one that was rejected on behalf of all because God predetermined that he be the lamb slaughtered or slain in sacrifice before the foundation of the world, a reality that became manifest in April of A.D. 30 on a cross on a hill called Golgotha outside the gates of Jerusalem, where we're called to go bearing his reproach. Now, in Romans 11, 28 and 29, it's revealed that one can be loved and elected and still be an enemy of the gospel. In fact, everybody is, apart from God's act of reconciliation in Christ, an enemy of the gospel. This is apostolic reasoning, as Paul continues in Romans 11.30. If you're in Romans 11, please get there, and we will continue, because Romans 11.30 continues. After saying the gifts and the calling of God cannot be taken back, he then says something about 
Gentile believers among the saints in Rome. He says in verse 30, as you, he's talking specifically to Gentile believers who had a bias against their Jewish brethren, even as Jewish brethren in Rome had a group bias against those pagans that were coming in. There was a bias working both ways. Romans was written to destroy those, that wall of biases, and it was successful. He says, as you, meaning Gentile Christians, once disobeyed. That means as a group, as pagan unbelievers, you were all unbelievers. You all disobeyed, but now have received mercy. He doesn't say, but now you've behaved. He says, now you've received mercy. What makes a people the people of God? 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people at all, but now you are the people of God. Second half of the verse, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Put those two together, the reasoning is you have mercy, so now you're the people of God. Once you were not the people of God because you had not yet received mercy. Now you have received mercy, so you are the people of God. Why are we the people of God? Because we believed in Jesus Christ, because we started to behave, because now we're good when once we were bad? No, because we've received mercy. Not according to righteous works which he have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So look at it in verse 30. But now you've received mercy, so they... These are the they that the Gentile Christians are pointing at. They, the hardened, unbelieving part of Israel that he's talking about specifically, whom you Gentile Christians see reflected unjustly in your Christian Jewish friends or Christian Jewish fellow believers. As you once disobeyed, that is as a group of pagan unbelievers, but now you've received mercy. So now they, the hardened part of Israel, which is hardened in part and only for a little while, as he explains, also have now disobeyed. You can see throughout the synagogues of the Roman Empire, many Jews are disbelieving the gospel. And they're crucifying and killing and persecuting the gospel messengers. So now, he says, the hardened part of Israel also have disobeyed. You can see it throughout the Roman Empire. They've become unfaithful to the gospel so that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. What? You'd think so that now they'll be judged just like pagans are judged, no? So that now they may receive mercy. The mercy you received while you were disobedient and unbelieving, they can now receive while they're disobedient and unbelieving. What qualifies them to receive mercy? Faith? No, unbelief. Their unbelief. What qualifies them to receive mercy? Their obedience? No, their disobedience. Look at how he reasons this. For God has shut up. The word there actually means slammed a prison door on them and threw away the key for a little while. God has shut up all human beings whether they're Gentiles or Jews, which contemplates all humanity in this case, in disobedience and unbelief. All of them. 
in order to judge them all and send them all to hell. Oh, wait a minute. No, it doesn't say that. You think it would with some preachers. In order to have mercy on them all. You see, we can't understand the election of us, our individual election, until we understand the election of God of himself, who predetermined himself to be for man. And the election of Jesus Christ, who is predetermined to be a representative of all mankind and an archpriest. See how we're getting to Hebrews? Now, mercy here can't be dissociated from salvation. This mercy is salvific mercy. It's saving mercy. So we could accurately say God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have saving mercy on them all. Saving mercy because it is according to mercy that God saves us. We were dead in trespasses. Dead. In, what can a dead man do to be saved? Dead in trespasses. Those of you who were dead in trespasses, God made alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.5. By grace, you have been saved through faithfulness. Not yours, but Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Therefore, your salvation is a gift from God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and not of works, so that someone can't come along and brag and boast. God undercut every possibility of self-glorification. So what can be said of Israel can be said of Gentiles, can be said of all humanity. God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now what does that mean? Look at Romans 5.8. God demoed his love, demonstrated it, made it manifest, doing this. While we were yet sinners. You know what that means? While we were still actively resisting his love. That means he saw the whole human race in active resistance of his love. What did he do then? Well, in Christ, he reconciled the world to himself. Reconciled the world to himself. The world to himself. That's all humanity in all of its times and places, friends, in 2 Corinthians 5.19. So look at this. God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, and that means while we were still in active resistance to him. Active resistance can take on a lot of different forms. It can be active or it can be passive active resistance. Act, passive resistance is like what Cain said. Oh, my sin is too terrible for you to forgive. That's resistance of God. That's like saying that your sin has more power than the love of God in Christ. And so there's lots of ways you can do it in a humble way. Oh, my, I'm so sinful God could never forgive me, you see. Well, aren't you self-glorified by that as much as saying that you're good? 
I think I've only witnessed to a couple people in my life, and Phil and I did witness to this one lady a couple years ago. Maybe you remember her, Phil. She told us she wasn't a sinner. Remember her? She said, oh, I'm not, I can't say that about myself. I haven't sinned. Now, that's active resistance, or we could say passive. Either way you want to say it, it's passive-aggressive, resistance against God. But there's another person that would say this. Oh, I'm not only am I a sinner, my sins are so bad he can't forgive me. Same thing. Same thing. While we were still in active resistance, God sent his son, and Christ died. And so we'd say we're not only not justified by our act of believing, we are justified against our act of resistance of God. That's why it's all mercy. That's the thing that makes me happy when everything else in life says I shouldn't be happy. I, I get happy just thinking, wow, I'm, I'm elected, I'm justified, I'm saved by the mercy of God. It was against my own resistance. I didn't come running after God. He came running after me. I was the lost sheep. He sought me and found me. I found him because he found me first. I'm here because of the pure, unadulterated mercy of God. I know there's nothing I can do to maintain that status. I know there's no works I can do to take away from all the bad things I've done, and they are stacked up pretty high. I can think of them after salvation and before, but I can think of the mercy of God. That's the only, sometimes that's the only thing that makes me happy in this life. Because if you're dependent on purely human happiness, only one out of about 10 people gets to be truly humanly happy. Because something will take the happiness away. Something that some idiot will do will take it away. If you're happy and an idiot takes it away, then you're not having the joy of the Lord, you see. I'm speaking as a fellow idiot of people that can take happiness away. Christ died for us. In Christ's death, God reconciled the world to himself in 2 Corinthians 5.19. If Christ died while we were still resisting God, meaning he saw us down the corridors of time resisting him, and Christ died despite that. God made us friends while we were still enemies, says Romans 5.10. If God reconciled us while we were enemies, says Romans 5.10, just down the road a little bit from that, then how much more will we be saved by his life, he says. It must be that God saved us not only without any merit of our own, but against our resistance. We have all received from Jesus Christ's fullness, grace on top of grace, John 1.16. You can't make it any other than grace. I don't care what you do. You can't make it other than all grace. The election also has to be considered as through and through a matter of God's free grace and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. God's grace because God determined himself to be for us. So that he said, I will not be God except God for them. I will never be God except God for them. I will be Yahweh, which is I am that I am, and I am for them, and never other than for them. And that means for creation, 
in its totality. In election, Jesus Christ is first, and he is all. And if you, don't under, if you want to understand election, you have to understand that. To know our election is to know the election of Jesus Christ. For first, God elected himself to be for us, Romans 8.31. Then he elected Jesus Christ in representation of us all. In electing Jesus Christ, he elected the human race per se, and not merely a selection from among the human race. Jesus Christ is elect. In fact, Jesus is the elect one. Ha electos, eclectos. In Isaiah 28, 16, Jesus Christ is called the elect, eclecton, stone. I lay in Zion an elect stone, a chosen stone, a foundation stone. This verse is actually quoted in 1 Peter 2, 4. There is Jesus Christ, the elect one. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter calls the former pagans to whom he was writing living stones. You as living stones. Why? First, he mentions Jesus Christ, the living stone, the elect one. You are living stones in him because you are elect only in him. He, he is first, Jesus Christ is the elect. As the living stone, Jesus is the elect one. As living stones, plural, the saints are plural elect. They are elect in him, in the elect one, in Christ Jesus. In Isaiah 42, 1, God proudly points to Jesus Christ by indicating, he says, I help Jacob, my servant. He indicated Jacob. He said, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my elect one, singular. He said, I will help Jacob, my servant, Israel, my elect one, ha eclectos. I have put my spirit upon him meaning that the ultimate meaning of Jacob and Israel is Jesus. I have put my spirit on him, he says in Isaiah 42.1, which he verifies to be Jesus Christ in Isaiah 61.1 and Luke 4.18 and following. He will bring forth judgment to the nations. He will bring forth judgment to the nations. You know what judgment he will bring forth to the nations? The judgment of justification. All judgment has been given to me, said Jesus. All judgment has been given to me because I am that son of man whom Daniel saw coming to the ancient of days to receive a kingdom. I am the son of man. All judgment has been given to me. What will you do with that privilege of judgment on all the nations? I will be judged for them. I will be judged in their place. I will become sin for all. I will be judged. I will be the judge who is judged. And another way to describe that is I will be the priest in representation of them all. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom price for all. 1 Timothy 2, 6 and 7. So, 
Here we have a decidedly messianic promise. Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my elect one, being ultimate references to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This was even understood by his detractors, by his persecutors. For on the cross, they looked up at Jesus and said, he crucified others. Let him save himself if this is God's elect one. God's elect one. The elect one. So the five links of the golden link chain in Romans 8.30, yes, we're going to get to Hebrews 9.26, I promise, unless the Lord takes me home between now and then. The five links of the golden, that means before the message is over. Now, the five links of the golden link chain in Romans 8.30 are those whom God has foreknown, called, justified, glorified. First and foremost is, first and foremost, rather, is foreknown, which is better understood as chosen or elected beforehand. Not just known, like cognizant of, yeah, I know they exist down the road, but determined beforehand. This chain cannot be broken, as we've said. Just as God's calling and gifts cannot be revoked or taken back. We're dealing here with what Hebrews refers to as unchangeable things. Amatathaton unchangeable things in Hebrews 6.18, like the oath and the promise of God. And so, before we look at Hebrews 9, I want to look at two other passages. First, Romans 8. Let's look at the translation of that, to know beforehand or to have foreknowledge. Those whom God chose beforehand, pro-genosko. Progenosco, that means chose beforehand, not just knew beforehand. That doesn't even make sense, to know beforehand. It means to not just know, but to determine beforehand. He predetermined. So just to back this up, he puts another pro word in, P-R-O-O-R-I-Z-O. That's where our word horizon comes in. He, what he says is he limited their horizon to salvation. Whom he foredetermined or predetermined, he limited their horizon to salvation, to calling, justification, and glorification. Did you know that your horizon is limited to glorification? Because God elected himself to be for you, because God elected Jesus Christ to be for you, and as your representative and judged for you as the judge, your Destiny and future is limited to glorification. I don't care who you are, what you've done, who you think you are, who you think you are by your own merit, who think, or who you think you are by your own sinfulness. Your destiny is limited, I'm sorry, to glory. Sorry. Hate to tell you that. Believe it or not, some people will get mad at that because it kicks out the props. They want to have their destiny be glory because of something they did. So that's the bad news. You're not limited to glory because of something you are or something you did. The I in tulip isn't I, me, and mine. It's irresistible grace. What do people do with that pronoun, by the way, I? I want to have a different pronoun, but what do you do when you say, I am going to the store? Do you say, they am going to the store? It am going to the store? Animal that I am by identification 
trotting to the store. What do you say? I mean, I can't be, you can't take away the I. You're still a subject whether you like it or not. The I still applies to you whatever, whatever other pronouns you choose. And if you're referring to me in the second person, I prefer to be called you by you. Hey, you. Not hey, they. Hey, dog. You remember that one? Hey, dog. Now, don't call me dog. I'm a man. Hey, you. You and I are pronouns that are hard to take away. What are you going to say instead of them? Anyways, that's a different time. I live in a weird time now. I don't know. Do you? Yeah, I think we do. Those whom God chose beforehand, he predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your horizon is limited to be conformed to the likeness of his glorified son. Sorry. For him, it's all because of him. God did this for his son, primarily, and you secondarily. For him to be the firstborn, meaning the firstborn of a family of many siblings. So God said, you know, son, I want to make you the firstborn of a family of many siblings. You're going to have many brothers and sisters, and you're going to be the first among them. And so, for him to be the firstborn of many siblings. Now, those whom he predetermined, prohorizo, limited their destiny, for that conformity into the likeness of his son, meaning those he also called. And those he called, those he also justified. And those he also glorified. And he did this in a way of phrasing it that everything is exactly the same. As many as he predetermined, these are exactly the same number that he called. And that he called, those whom he called, is exactly the same number that he justified. But wait a minute, he justified all in Romans 5.18, correct? Because all are elected in Jesus Christ in Romans 8.30. Put Romans 8.30 together with Romans 5.18, you got yourself a Bible study. You got yourself a couple verses to put on your refrigerator. It might even stop you from going to the refrigerator to get the maple fudge. Maple fudge. I'm going to get some today. Anyways, the knowing in the foreknowing or the knowing in advance is a determining ahead of time. That's why the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. He was determined as the slaughtered lamb who would take away the sin of the world before time. Not just before time, before time. See how you can play with the word? Before time or before time. You were predestined not just before time, but before time. A thing called time. Now let's go to First Peter and we'll close. There's many oranges that are being juggled on this stage today. Juggling three or four oranges. Let's go to first Peter. The knowing and the foreknowing. Consider Peter. Now, of all the resemblances of Hebrews to other books in the Bible, I think the sharpest resemblance is Hebrews to first Peter. It's the first epistle of Peter. Peter is also like Ephesians, has the same introduction in 1.3 as Ephesians does in 1.3 because it's written not to Jews primarily but to former pagans. 
Peter is writing to these former pagans because they had Jesus Christ revealed to them out of the blue and by an act of pure mercy. And so Peter wrote to them to tell them what happened to them. That's what Ephesians is. A bunch of pagans were preached to and they ended up in Christ. The Holy Spirit was in them and they wondered what happened to them. Ephesians is telling them what happened to them. So the primary epistle of Paul is not Romans, but Ephesians. That's the primal epistle. That tells people what happened. What happened to me? Well, first of all, you were chosen in him before time, before the foundation of the world. God predestined you in love. He redeemed you by his blood, by the blood of his son, and gave you the forgiveness of sins. And now he's given you his Holy Spirit to bear witness to all that and to make you a witness to others about that. Oh, okay. I'll take it. Notice in 1 Peter 1, 1b-2, Peter describes his readers as... Eclectoi, right off the bat. Eclectois, plural of electus. According to the advanced determination, prognosis, all this will be in print so you can see it. I don't have time to write it all up here, or you'll miss lunch and be grouchy and want to beat me to a pulp. Now, according to the advanced determination, prognosis of God the Father, now you have to supply some verbs here. Set apart by the Spirit, he says to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? When you were elect, you were set apart, not to your obedience, but to be beneficiaries of the obedience of Jesus Christ and to be beneficiaries of what? Something we've learned all about in Hebrews, the sprinkled blood, purification by his blood. You are elect. Not by the Spirit. God the Father elected you. So the Spirit here isn't the elector. He's the one who sets you apart to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkled blood, the purification that comes by his blood. The same thing is found, the same progression is found in Ephesians 1, 4 to 7, but we'll maybe hit that on a Wednesday. This can be compared, and I think we'll do a comparison to Ephesians 1, 4 to 7, where it begins with our election in time, before time, and then to redemption by his blood. So from the election to redemption and forgiveness of sins is both 1 Peter 1-2 and Ephesians 1-4-7. But Peter has election leading by the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. God the Father has elected us according to a determination that he made in advance to set us apart by the Spirit. I'm interpreting that verse right now. To the obedience of Christ and the resultant purification by the sprinkling of his blood. Peter is saying in so many words, you're saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ, not your own. You're purified by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, not by anything you do. And you've been elected by God in Jesus Christ. But that's not the main point I want to make. Just note here the astonishing link between 1 Peter 1 and 2 and Hebrews 9, 14 and 23 with respect to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But the connection is only partly revealed here. Now, as I've said, all of this is going somewhere with regard to Hebrews. Because in 1 Peter 1, 20, and this is the point I, be, I led off with, 1 Peter 1, 20, 
It says that Jesus Christ was elected indeed, foreknown indeed. Little word men, M-E-N, means indeed. Oh, indeed. He was elected. But in these last times, eschaton chronon, in these last times, he was manifested. And that's where we have our word phanerao. Manifested. Now, why did this link up with Hebrews? Because what I consider to be the prime verse in Hebrews is 9.26, where it says, Now, once at the termini of the ages, Christ appeared, phanerao, was made manifest. And what did he do when he was made manifest? He sacrificed himself to take away sin by the offering of himself once and for all. Let's gather the context now. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8. This is what goes through my mind all the time. You know why I don't think I'll ever lose my mind? Because it's filled with stuff like this. If I ever lose my mind, it's because I'm trying to gather all this stuff up together all the time. So I have to do things like ask people, where am I? And they have to tell me. And I go, oh, okay, oh, all right, okay. But here's 1 Peter 1.18, my translation from the original Greek text. Knowing, oh, wait a minute, oida, oida. Knowing full well, knowing perfectly well, knowing without doubt that not with perishable items, that means coins in this case, not with perishable coins like those of silver or gold, you were Ransomed. Remember we talked about the financial metaphor, the monetary metaphor for redemption? That's Peter using the monetary metaphor. Elsewhere he uses the judicial, which is the most important, where the judge becomes judged. This case, he becomes a ransom payer. That's monetary. There is judicial. Then there's cultic, the Levitical cultic that we're dealing with in Hebrews. He says, knowing that not with perishable items like those of silver and gold, that's gold coins, were you ransomed, lutrao, is the verbal form of the word used in Hebrews 9.12 for redemption, lutrosis. But from the idolatrous lifestyle, vain lifestyle is connected, I'll have to explain that some other time, directly to idols. So these are pagans that he's writing to, former pagans. Knowing that not with perishable items like those of silver and gold, like uh, of silver and gold, were you ransomed, from the idolatrous lifestyle handed down to you from your ancestors. Those are pagan ancestors. This is talking within the scope of the financial metaphor. But with the precious, he uses precious, invaluable, and by implication, imperishable blood. Not with perishable items, but with precious and implication, imperishable item the blood of Christ. You were redeemed or ransomed from that vain and idolatrous lifestyle handed down to you by your pagan ancestors by the blood of Christ as of a lamb without defect. Don't have time to write it, but it's amomos, and it's the same word used in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who offered himself without spot, amomos, as a lamb, 
purify your consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. The living God who elected himself to be for you. So, a lamb without defect or stain. Paul, Peter now moves from the monetary to the cultic and therefore moves into the territory of Hebrews. Verse 20, here's the key verse for today in connection with Hebrews 9.26. Whom God determined beforehand. Progenosko, there it is. God elected him beforehand. Progenosko, to be sure. Indeed is the word there. Indeed. God foreknew in the sense of God predestined predetermined him indeed he is indeed pre why is he indeed predetermined because his election is before your election and his election is your election he's elect indeed without him there is no other election of you or me or the world elect indeed we could call this message today elect indeed so whom God determined beforehand, that is, we could translate that openly, elected to be sure, or indeed. I like that word, indeed. But who has now been, what? Manifested. Phanerao. Same as Apocalypto, who has been shockingly manifested at the end of times. This word is eschaton chronon. You know what that sounds like to me? Hebrews 1, 1. God who in times past spoke provisionally in his prophets has in these last days. In these last days. Eschaton hameron. These last days. Spoken to us in a son. How did he speak to us in a son? He spoke to us in a son who gave himself as a sacrifice once and for all at the termini of the ages. So this is the connection I made between 1 Peter 1.20 and Hebrews 9.26. And so when we get to 9.26, and we're in 9.23 now, it'll be waiting for us. And we'll say, oh yeah. And it'll be light in God's light. Let's close. Whom God elected indeed, but who has now been made manifest at the end of times, just like in these last days in Hebrews 1-2, and at the termini of the ages in Hebrews 9-26. So in closing, let's look at the context of Hebrews 9-26. And you'll see that I am doing what people thought I stopped doing. Oh, we don't go there anymore because he doesn't teach line upon line, someone says. Oh, really? This is line upon line, Hebrews 9.19. For when every commandment of the law had been articulated by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the scroll of the law itself and all the people, while saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has ordained for you. This sprinkled blood is sprinkling earthly things that are copies of the heavenly things, remember? Verse 21, in the same way, Moses also sprinkled the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
earthly things, copies of the heavenly. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was cleansed by blood, and without the pouring of blood, there is no forgiveness, aphesis, forgiveness without the blood. Now, given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens be purified, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We taught that that's the one sacrifice of Christ. But here's the kicker. Verse 24, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands like the priest did once a year in a little day called Yom Kippur. Pretty important day to the Jews, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, once a year. He didn't go into the earthly second tent once a year. You know what he did? Looks like Messiah didn't go into a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. You know what means more to me than me going to heaven? That Jesus went to heaven. Because when Jesus went to heaven as the elect one, we all went to heaven with the elect one. I don't have to worry about going to heaven when I die. I don't even like to think of that. Because you think, well, what does that mean? I don't know. What does that mean? Are we going to float? Are we going to be flotation devices? Are we going to have harps? That's all baloney. We can't even describe it. So somebody says, well, what's it going to be like? I don't know. I don't want to know because if I knew, then there'd be something on this world I would know about heaven that we're not supposed to know in this world because it's too great to know in this world. So why should I tell you about something that's too great to know in this world as if I knew something that's too great to know in this world? All I can say is it's too great to know in this world, and if you went there and came back, you couldn't talk about it. So, so much for that. The Messiah didn't enter into earthly places, heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not in order to offer to himself many times, palakas, not many times, just as the archpriest entered into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another, in which case he would have had to suffer death, that's absolute death, many times since the foundation of the world. But now once, once, at the termini of the ages, he was manifested. Phanerao, just like 1 Peter 1.20, just like Romans 3.21, when Paul made the fantastic, astonishing pivot and talked about righteousness, and he said in his astonishing pivot, now a righteousness of God has been phanerao, manifested, a righteousness from God apart from law, a saving righteousness of God has been revealed. How? Through the gospel. Where? At the cross in the crucified Christ the saving righteousness of God apart from law apart from human performance has been manifested once and for all now that's the same word phanerao the same word phanerao once at the end of the ages at the termini of the ages at the end of the old and the beginning of the new at the cross of Christ on Mount Golgotha outside the gates of Jerusalem where we're beckoned to go today to bear his reproach in Hebrews 13:13 13, 13, Moses went there 
It says that he considered the reproach of Christ better than the treasures of Egypt. So you want to follow Moses in your Yom Kippur? The only way to follow Moses is to follow Moses as he followed Christ. For he considered the reproach of the Messiah greater riches than the riches of Egypt or the riches of New York or the riches of Egypt today or the riches of Israel today or the riches of the Middle East. He considered all those riches to be dung compared to the reproach that he suffered by identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get pulled back into Judaism, but I invite everybody who is in Judaism to come on in to Jesus Christ, because that's what it was all talking about in the first place. There's a big trend now, just like in the day of Hebrews, there's a great attraction to go back to the feasts and to celebrate the feasts of Israel. And that's, it's a wonderful thing to understand their heritage and to understand their history. But there's something much better. The Bible doesn't beckon us back to Judaism. It beckon us, beckons us on to Jesus Christ who fulfills all the festivals of Judaism. That's what we should be talking about today. But we don't know enough about him to beckon people on to him. So let's close again. <laughs> In which case he would have had to suffer many times, but he didn't. He suffered once. Now once at the termini of the ages, he has been manifested for the removal of sin. God hid him for a while, foreknew him and predetermined him to be sure, the elect one. But now he's been made manifest. What Peter didn't quite say, but the Hebrew author did say was, what happened when he was manifested? Well, he took away sin by the self-offering of himself. Took it away! Expiated it! Made it not to be! Destroyed it utterly! And with that taking away of sin, he took away the man of sin who was immolated in the holocaust of the old man, which went up in smoke, went up in flames, and is no more. So put him off! and put on the new man, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provisions for the old man to stay at your hotel. Amen. We're done. Thank you for your attentiveness.